we in a series called Drawing Near in a Land of Famine, and it's about the land of Goshen. So I'm going to read the text this morning, Genesis 47, verse 6 says, the land of Egypt, and the context of this is Joseph being restored to his father, Jacob, after Joseph has risen to power. They meet up, and this is what is said by Pharaoh to Jacob and his sons, and obviously Joseph being there. And that's Genesis 47, verse 6, and it says, The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, the word Goshen means to draw near. It means drawing near. It speaks of intimacy. It speaks of fellowship. And it says, And if you know any competent men among you, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. You know, a while ago, the Lord started to speak to me about Goshen every time I would pray. And it may seem like an obscure text to you, and, and that's okay, but he just started to put that word in my heart. And so we had a, an encounter night a few weeks ago here, and for all those in business or anything to do with business, because where Goshen was made famous, there's actually many cities and places, even in this nation, called Goshen. You know, there's a Goshen in Indianapolis, there's a few different, or Indiana, and I now don't know. But um, there's also one up in the Philippines, there's a massive hotel called Goshen Hotel. And they've rebuilt like a miniature version of the Roman Colosseum. And on the front of it, it says, make his praise glorious. And it's the, it's the best hotel on TripAdvisor in the Philippines. And, you know, and that's called Goshen Hotel. So there's something of this that began to stir in my heart. So we had a, an encounter night. We prayed for many people. We just, we felt that it was, you know, if you look at Goshen in the time of Moses, the Israelites were slaves then, and they were dwelling in Goshen. And whenever the plagues would come, which set, the, set free um, the Israelites from Egypt, from under Pharaoh's hand, um, it says the plagues wouldn't go near Goshen. And that's, in a sense, what made it well known. It's God's protection and provision and sustainment and everything on his people. And it becomes a, a, a clear distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. Now, when we read the Old Testament, we don't fight flesh and blood anymore. So when we read the Old Testament, we obviously understand. We read it with a New Testament understanding. And we're not called to fight people. They are actually the focus of our love. Hello. Okay, so Egypt, as we know, stands for the world. Pharaoh would stand for the enemy. And there's many prophetic meanings that we're taking out of the text because that's how we see, you know, obviously there's the story too in the actual text. But when you look in the Old Testament, you know, David says in Psalms, smash their teeth in their mouth, speaking about his enemies. We don't say that about people anymore because the cross of Christ has kind of changed that. So, but we do pray that in regards to the prince of the air, the principalities and powers and the unseen realm that has a great effect. Now, sometimes it comes through people, but it's because their minds are blinded, and yet they have the same value as us. I hope that's clear. When the coin was lost with the parable of the woman who lost the coin, it had the same value as a coin before it was found. So we are called as the church to let God arise so that the enemy scatters, and that means to have the blindness removed, the, the scales peeled of people's eyes so they can see Christ, not us. Yeah? Okay, wonderful. Now that we agree, let's continue. So Goshen is something that God put in our hearts, and we had a, an encounter night about it. We just worshiped the Lord, but then we prayed for contracts and businesses and people and those who just 
had difficult things going on in the business world. And we will take some time next week to share some testimonies. There have been some amazing testimonies, amazing testimonies about things that have changed and altered since two weeks ago. Some of them were, you know, eight, nine, ten years of the same, and then all of a sudden change. It's just amazing. God is good. He's good. So, going to go backwards two chapters to Genesis 45 with those with an actual Bible. It should be easy to find. And we're going to start in verse 3. It says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And the context here is Joseph is revealing himself to his brothers. He's now the highest power on the land, and his brothers have come to Egypt looking for food, looking for whatever they can find, because there's been famine in the land for two years, and there's going to be for seven years. And he now tells them, I'm Joseph, and they sold him as slaves. Obviously, they're afraid, because he now sits in the seat of power. And it says, they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. It's actually the meaning of Goshen. That's why it's named it. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity, that's future generations, a posterity for you in the earth, and to save your lives by great deliverance. And so now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh. I said it last week, and I said again, there are many people who sit in powerful seats in the world, I believe that God wants to put Joseph's and Daniel's next to them that, have, that represent a father's heart, but they're not there to gain something for themselves. You know, they are people with an orphan mindset. They're like orphans, but they're gifted, sitting in high seats of power. And God wants to bring alongside fathers to these people to actually help them, shepherd them, guide them. He says, he's made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. And hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your, your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. It's the law first mentioned. It's the first time it's mentioned in the Bible. And it means drawing near. And you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty for there are still five years of famine. You know, firstly, it's to you and your children and your children's children. The gospel is always generational. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Always generational. Always generational. And Joseph is a Christ figure. And by that, I mean, obviously, he's not Christ. He, you know, Boaz and Ruth. Boaz was a kinsman to Ruth, a kinsman redeemer, just like Jesus was. Joseph, everything points to Christ. And Joseph is a very, in a sense, extreme Christ figure. There's so many things that line up with Joseph's life, and it just points to Christ. He's an extraordinary man. He really, really is. But in Christ, we are born of another kingdom. Yeah? Joseph was born in another kingdom. And yet he lived in Egypt. We are born of another kingdom. We live in the world. And I believe with all my heart that Goshen is, an, is a very clear Old Testament picture of what it looks like, as it says in John 14 or 15, to live in the world but not be of it. You know, it doesn't mean to separate yourself in terms of not live with. 
It just means we resourced by an unseen realm. My kingdom is not of this world. You know, often as God's people, we feel like slaves to the system, yeah? We feel like slaves, we go to work, we, it's like there's the systems of the world and sometimes we feel trapped by that. You know, let me actually read you something. I, I think it may come up behind you, I don't know, I can't remember, but it's in Exodus chapter one. The question is I have for you this morning, I have many, but I'm still laying a platform. Why were they made slaves? Because Goshen under, under Joseph, it says in the last part of Genesis that they, that they, Joseph had his children's children's children. He raised them on his knee, says that. It was a time of incredible fruitfulness and blessing. But then we all know when we think of Goshen, many people think of the slaves in Egypt. Why were they made slaves? Well, it tells us here in Exodus 1, I think it's about verse six. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased and abundantly multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty and the land was filled with him. Now there arose a king of Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we are. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war. And then it says it again later on, and they were in dread. They were in dread about the people and the children of Israel. You see, why were they slaves? Because their potential was truly terrifying to the enemy. You know, and it's the same today, friends. The potential of God's people terrifies the enemy. So he divides us over and over and over and over and over. Because he's afraid. It's like they were saying, if they realize their strength, it's like that little clip out of that movie, I think it's ants. You know, the little grasshopper comes along and says to the other grasshopper, you know, the, the outnumber is 100 to one. You know, we have to keep them divided, is kind of the message. Because if they realize their strength, we're finished. So what are we gonna do? We're gonna get, we're gonna make sure that they're busy being busy. We're gonna keep them busy. We're gonna entrap them in just a system. We're gonna do that and distract them till they forget their God, they forget whose they are, and they forget who they are. Hello? Yeah. Who feels like this sometimes? It's great. The rest of you, we'll help you later for the lies. But our potential, uh, I really mean this, friends, it's, it's feared by the unseen realm. Really is. I keep saying, the devil has no authority, and I don't focus on him because I just don't. But he does have power. But the unity of people, you know, is an extremely important and powerful thing in God's kingdom. So last week, where did we start last week? We looked at the text, draw near to me, and we started with fellowship. And what I wanna show you today, I'm not speaking to anybody personally. I'm not, in a sense, grilling any person. I'm trying to unmask the enemy. I'm trying to pull back a veil that people can actually see. It is the cry of my heart. I was driving around last night, weeping in the car, saying, God, people have gotta see how the enemy deceives them over and over with, with all of us. So we spoke last week about fellowship. That's what Goshen means, drawing near. In 1 John 1, 3, we see it says, that which we have seen, we have heard, and that's Christ, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You know, be with you all. When a person is walking with the Lord, is walking in the Spirit, that just means submission to what He's doing in your life. And is walking with Him. You'll find they're actually easier to be around in general. And a lot of people, they go, when you talk about fellowship, you know, they go to that important text or that very well-known text in Acts chapter 2, where they devoted themselves, it says in the NIV. The New King James and the King James says they continued steadfastly in what? The apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. Apostles' doctrine is just, it's the New Testament. And so we look at that text of this incredible community. It says they ate together with glad and simplicity. They feared God. They enjoyed the favor of all the people. God added. They ate in each other's homes and the temple. They shared everything they had. Everything was in common. It's this, this picture of community that many people long for. They say, where's that community? And so what happens with well-meaning hearts, please hear me, and I said some of this last week, with well-meaning hearts, we, we start to try to make that community happen. You know, we look for the ends, but we forget the means. The means was what just happened before that was the Holy Spirit came and changed the hearts. I found it so many times when people have, the, they put this expectation, well, look at what the community in the Bible is, you know, and then they have this unrealistic expectation. And they put it on themselves, well-meaning, and on others. Either they genuine desire for community or their devotion to Scripture, and, so, and it actually makes things worse. Who knows what I'm talking about? Because you, you do anything that violates that, then they're mad at you. It's kind of missing the point. Because you cannot have the end without the means, friends. The means is a melted heart by the Spirit of God. That was the first effect that was the first effect. It says they were cut to the heart. They, the King James says their hearts were pricked when the Holy Spirit came to the earth. It says their hearts were pricked. And that's exactly what it says in Ezekiel. When the Spirit of God left the temple. Because they were assuming all these things. Well, God, you know, like God experts. Well, God will do that and then God will do that. It's like we start telling him what to do. And the Spirit of God left the temple. He said, when I return, I will melt the heart. So he comes in Acts 2. And it says their hearts were pricked. That word in the Greek means pierced through more than the spear went into the side of Christ. They were pierced right through. So what, what do we do? So God turned the heart. And then they dwelt together. It's supernatural fellowship. It, it's a type of fellowship that is not often seen. And people think I'm unrealistic. I, I long for that. I really do. But we have to remember the means. We really do. And it's not even about just the move of God. It's not even just about the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it, even once that had happened, it says they still had to devote themselves to it. They had to continue steadfastly with what was started. Practical decisions and how to think and how to live. It's because fellowship, genuine, the spirit of fellowship can be one of the major driving forces behind and in church that is having impact into the community. Because when people get saved, they get saved into a context and it should not be an institution. It should not be defined by doctrinal agreement. 
but the love of God that is shed abroad in the heart. Romans 5. So, imagine for a moment, if you can, the early church. And then we'll move on to more of today, because this is some of this is last week. But the early church, I, I don't know if we can fully grasp, they were moving from one system to another system, from Judaism to Christianity. Imagine the enormous trust they had in the apostles. When it says the apostles' doctrine, they were changing everything that they had known. Everything changed. And they had to trust these men and women. Then they were living with people from different cultures and different languages. That's what happened. They were all there for a feast. People that were raised Hellenistic, Jewish people, but raised outside of Israel. And then the Grecian Jews were raised inside, and they thought they were better than them, and they were more educated than them, and they didn't understand their language. And now all of a sudden, they're all living together. And they think they're better than one another. And they're transitioning. A major, it, it's, everything's changed. We no longer go to the temple. We no longer, and who's telling me what to do and how do I do? And the role of woman suddenly changed because Jesus made everything the same. When the Spirit comes upon all flesh, young and old, men and women, men servants, maid servants, all the same. So everything's changed. There was such a high possibility of offense. And yet, it's the biblical picture of community. It's incredible because of the Spirit of God in the heart. The opportunity of offense was truly off the, off the charts. But yet it says they were in one accord. That word means same mind, same passion. It doesn't mean agreement on everything. It means same purpose, same focus, same mind, the mind of Christ. Why this text? Well, I believe this is not a naysayer. I just, the Lord has, by the grace of God, just speaks to me, just, and I see some of what's coming. And, you know, the church will not weather what's coming with the way that we are, not just us in, in general. There's a shift that will, is coming, and God is working in the hearts of men and women to bring a, to bring a shift because what's coming is different to, than what we know. So we're going to look at this text because people say, well, that's great. Well, why this text? Because Joseph was able to look at his brothers who hurt him, who sold him, and say, come draw near to me. And because of the freedom in my heart, I can give you an invitation to live in the land where I live. And that is what I believe, something of what there's a, there's a strategy that I'm going to show you this morning by the grace of God. <laughs> there's a strategy that I want to show and reveal this morning that the Lord has spoken to me for quite a while. It's an old path. It's an ancient path, but it's a strategy that you see all over the book of Acts. You know, and it's extremely important, and I believe it's something that God wants to bring back to the church. So it's nothing new. It's nothing fancy. You know, most truths that are basic are profound, but they're the ones that everyone, you know, we think we live in them, and then God shows us, not really. And he changes the heart. We're like, oh, now I understand. Yeah? What does fellowship make possible? Genesis 45, we'll read again, because this is nothing short of miraculous. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness. 
Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves that you sold me here. So if we, if we see Joseph as a Christ figure, you know, we have to be able to hear that from the Lord. And I encourage you, can you hear that from the Lord? Because the cross of Christ, the forgiveness that we receive, is the invitation to live where he lives. But we have to hear, do not be grieved. Do not be grieved at the past. You know, if you, you, you have to, I wrote it like this. Can you hear from the Lord, do not grieve at your past and what you've done? Because in forgiveness, we get to draw near to the Lord. Go, we get to draw near despite your past. And your past is yesterday. It's not just what you did when you were a teenager. Thank goodness. But your past is yesterday too. You know, and the Lord's constantly saying, draw near my mercies on you every morning. Every morning, come to me. Come to me, don't run away from me. And unless we can receive that, because you cannot earn it, you cannot make it up, you cannot, you cannot strive for it. And some people, you know, I built this with just my hands, my two heart, we did this, I did this. That is part of the nature of the human being. But it doesn't work with us, not with salvation, not with the Lord. He says, come near, based on what I've done, not based on what you've done. But then what about Joseph as you? Because Joseph is a you too. It's a person living in the world, but not born there. Well, he had forgiven them. Forgiveness, forgiveness begets forgiveness. It's the Matthew 18 principle. Allow the massive debt that you've been forgiven, the massive debt that you've been forgiven, to change and equip your heart to be able to forgive others. Not once off, to live with forgiveness. Friends, there is a freedom, and I, I've done many series on forgiveness. It's a real passion on my heart because I know what it is to be free even when people are coming at you and you can love them. To be genuinely free. And forgiveness towards others comes the more you have a revelation of his forgiveness towards you and how enormous it is. It's the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 that says, you know, he, he was owed 10,000 talents. Jesus tells a story. This man owed 10,000 talents, which is, it basically means it's unpayable. It's, it's ridiculous. And he gets forgiven that massive debt. That's you, that's your sin, that's what you're born in, that's who you are, that gets changed. And then he goes outside and it says he grabs him by the neck. He throttles some guy for 60 bucks. It says for one denarii, that's a daily wage. So I did some comparison for you just to show you. 10,000 talents is 60 million days worth of wages. 60 million days worth of wages is what it was in the Bible. So I looked at the median income of Loudoun County and I know it's the highest in the nation, but it's where you live. The math is this, 28,846,250,000. That's the debt that this person, that you were forgiven. And I know it's obviously talking about something that you cannot pay. It's rounded up to $29 billion. $29 billion, sorry, thank you. What? Oh yes, sorry, million, sorry, sorry. But now, but 
you know, friends, it's, it's still a lot. 29 million, but then you do the, it's actually that in my notes, sorry. Then you do the, the comparison, it's $60. So you've been forgiven that much, and you go outside and you demand payment for 60. It's, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. And yet, yet, this is what people do when we hold on to things. We hold on to it, and we hold on to it, and we hold on to it. See, unforgiveness is the birthplace of a victim mentality. And the currency of victimhood is gossip and offense. And you know, if you trade on the black market, you'll get put in prison. And that's in a sense what happened. This man who wouldn't forgive, that other guy came back and says, fine, I'll put you in prison. It binds you up, it ties you up and you get put in prison. Because you're trading on a black market, you're trading in gossip and offense. And I'm not saying you are, I'm saying this is the principle. It's a big deal. You know, and often, well, let me, let me go further. I'll give you two points on gossip. <clears throat> gossip always brings division. Always, 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 in case you missed it, all the time. Relationships will always be affected. You see, if I, if I gossip to someone, they will either defend the person or they will join me. I've removed their choice to stay neutral unless they're free, unless they're walking with the Lord. It assumes a lot. <laughs> the Talmud, which was like the oral code that the Jewish, it's not the scripture, but it's the oral code that they passed down, has this in the Talmud. Gossip kills three. The one who says it, the one who listens, and the subject of it. That's what it says in the Talmud. The second point of gossip is a kingdom divided, what, a kingdom divided won't stand. I'll ask you a question. What do you think the enemy will use as a weapon more? The things that we as a church think, oh my goodness, I can't believe they did this awful thing. A person who makes a, a serious mistake one time, think of whatever that is in your mind. Oh goodness, I can't believe they did that. You know, whatever. But actually, in their life, in their heart, they're free and they know and they love the Lord. And they've made a mistake. Those people draw in. Those are the people that religion punishes. Or gossip that permanently divides the opposition of the enemy. Which weapon do you think he thinks is more powerful? This one. You know, gossip offense, it will always divide, and a kingdom divided won't stand. And, and it, it's a really big deal, you know. And it's so part of the culture, it's so part of, it's so severe, if you look at Galatians 5, it says this, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom. That's because now they were moving away from the law, right? They were moving away from the law, and they were under freedom, under grace, because under the law, gossip, slander in the Bible, gossip, slander, these things were actually, in a sense, somewhat practically punishable by the law. So there was a less of a, oh, better not say that, better keep my mouth quiet, whatever it may be. But it says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, to serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour, now you see that word katestheo, okay? It's not often used. That's important. 
I, put, I think I put it up there. Is it up there? Yes, that's there. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit. Again, what's the answer? The Spirit of God in the heart. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, let's bring it back to the story of Goshen. People say, well, you were talking about Joseph. Okay. In the Septuagint, which is the, old, the, Greek test, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is largely what they're reading in Christ's day, says this, and it's in reference to the plagues that God sent upon Egypt to break his people out free, and it's those plagues that never touched Goshen. It's what made Goshen well known. And it describes the plagues like this. He sent swarms of flies among them which devoured them. It's the same word, and it's very seldom used. And a Hebrew person would have understood that. And those flies, it's like piranhas in the sky. It's not like your house flies. They they bite you. They, They drink blood. They devour you, literally. He sent swarms of flies. So Paul is saying something extremely severe, that when we backbite, gossip, slander one another, believer to believer, brother to brother, sister to sister, when we do that, we are, we are, how did I write it? I don't, you are to each other what God was to the enemy. You know, and so the enemy knows he can just so easily in today's world just throw something into the church and watch them destroy each other. And yet they will very quickly punish someone who makes a mistake. Yet we, this is a far bigger weapon in his hand far bigger. And the church needs to wake up. I mean that with all the, and that's me too, to wake up to the deception of the enemy. Because he does this because he's afraid. Because he knows if we come together, uh uh-oh, it's exactly what happened in Egypt. You see, the enemy, I said this last week, does not fear a big church. And that doesn't mean, I think big church is great. It's nothing wrong with it. But the size, he doesn't fear the size, but he does fear unity within a church. Why? Because he remembers a time when it took 12, just 12. And when 12 were in one accord, Hamadathion, the Greek, says they became 120. That's a tenfold blessing. What was it about Joseph that brought him to a place where he can say, draw near to me, come here, and don't be grieved by what you did to me? What was it? Let's read. I'm Joseph, your brother. You're going to remember this text. You're going to leave, you're going to know this three or four verses. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. If you notice, I've made a little bit of a highlight on certain... Oh, no, I didn't. That's a lie. It's over here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land. And there are still five years. And then he carries on, verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve a posterity. And then verse 8. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. He had God's perspective. And it changed everything. It was not you who sent me here, but God. 
So this is the part that I believe there's a, there's a secret here. There's a key to the kingdom. There's a, there's, a, there's a key to victory that has been long forgotten. See, because we all know what Joseph endured, right? Murderous brothers, sold into slavery. He was paid in his integrity. He was paid for his integrity. He was paid in false accusation. It's like every time he did something, that was his salary. Over and over, he was forgotten. He was overlooked. He lived in a foreign land. And I know what that's like. You live in a foreign land. Now I'm, I'm American, more American, but when I got gotcha, you, it's, it's difficult, you know, when you move nation to nation. He was despised and rejected. Sounds a lot like Christ in Isaiah 53. All because of what? His brothers, his fellow Christians, his brothers. And now he has power. And so he could have ordered them killed like that because he was father to Pharaoh, lord of all Egypt. But what was his response? God has sent me before you. He is God's perspective. You know? Not only that, he's telling these people that did that to him, God used you as an instrument. You see that? He's saying, thank goodness. God used you as an instrument. You sold me into slavery so that God's purposes, you know? Reuben was probably like, yeah, no, I knew that, I knew. But it's, it's, you know, it was the wrong heart, but God will take it and turn it. See, victimhood is a thorn in the side of mission. Victimhood is a thorn in the side of mission. I, I, I would never want to jump in a foxhole in the military. I would never want to get in a foxhole with a person who's got a victim mentality. That's not someone you want to share a foxhole with. Yeah, you, you just don't, you know? You, you just, you know, you put someone else in there. Let them go back and make the coffee. But, because Joseph, he could have languished in bitterness. Please hear me. He could have languished in bitterness because he was falsely accused. He actually had a right to. He could have had a, a, a bitterness heart, a victim mentality, blaming everyone else. Yet he says, God sent me before you to preserve life. See, part of God's perspective, I'm gonna give you a few points quick, is discovering purpose in hardship, discovering purpose in hardship. You know, when you can discover God's purpose in hardship, it is truly, it is truly to unmask the enemy and to show people his tricks and his devices and his schemes. He doesn't want people to understand. What I'm sharing with you today, I'll say this to you, it may freak some of you out. Last night, I was severely attacked in my dreams. That's how God speaks to me a lot. Because I know, because of what I'm sharing this morning. Because it's so simple. It's so simple. God wants to use for good. We all know the scripture. God works, God will turn and use for good. Take everything, what is it? Work all things for good for those that love God. For those that love God. He wants to use it for good. I said it like this. God wants to use for good what the enemy purposed to be for destruction. It's his favorite Favorite material for building a launching pad. I love woodwork, and I know what it's like to use different materials. There's certain materials that you want to use for certain jobs. God's, one of his favorite materials to use to build a launching pad for you is the truth of discovering purpose in hardship. It's like, oh, I can build launching pads very quick like that. Very, very quick. You cannot... You cannot easily overcome a person who's learned to enjoy turning defeat into victory. You cannot. 
You just cannot. If they win, well, great, they win. If they lose, I'm really going to win. You know, and it's not a stubbornness. It's not a, it's not a strength in the flesh. It's a deep, deep form of surrender and trust. God, I love you. I don't understand, but I know you will turn this for good, and you may not do it immediately, because it doesn't mean he was the source of it. The other side of this coin is bad things happen, and it's always God's fault, and it must have been his will. No, probably not, but he wants to use it, so don't jump in the victim hole. I mean, how do, Joseph, I mean, he's an amazing man, slave in part of his house, sold as a slave, slave in part of his house. So what happens? The Bible says he became overseer of the whole house. Then part of his wife comes along, tempts him. He maintains his integrity. So what does he get? He gets thrown in prison. What does the Bible say? He get, becomes overseer of the whole prison. Bible even says that the prison guard didn't have to do anything. It says he never looked in on Joseph. In other words, he went home, Joseph's gonna do his job and he's gonna get paid because of Joseph's integrity. He starts and in, interprets dreams for influential people and becomes Lord of, or Lord of, uh, father of Pharaoh, Lord of all Egypt. When a person has God's perspective, now I wanna show you something that I trust you can take home with you. It's so important, why? It was the strategy of Jesus Christ. It is, it is what he taught his disciples. It is what he taught his disciples. I'm gonna show that to you now. When we learn in Psalm 17, I've got a new Bible. You know, it's not for us Bible people. It's, I don't like new Bibles. I mean, they're nice, but it's like, you know, I know where everything is in my Bible. But in Psalm 17, and all the pages are stuck together, you know? It's kind of strange when you're preaching and you open the Bible and the pages are stuck together. People are like, does this guy read the Bible? And uh, in Psalm 17, it says this. It's a very personal uh, Psalm for me. It says, if I can find it, yes. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your present, come from your presence. Let my vindication come from your presence. Not from me, not from my justification, not from my defense, not from, let my vindication come from you. Let your eyes look on things that are upright. Whenever these things happen, it is an incredible opportunity to discover what the presence of God genuinely is. There's been times in my life where I've taken that psalm and I've known stuff that's going out there is just going crazy about me and it's not true and whatever, the, or it's true and it's perceived, doesn't really matter. And every time I've taken this psalm and I read it over and over because it's an opportunity to discover a place of presence. It always is. This is what Jesus taught his disciples because that, when you're doing that, that's only just training. Just training when it's person to person because one day you may stand before tribunals and councils. People think, not me. Yeah, probably. If you saw you how God saw you, then definitely. It says, Jesus says in John 15, it says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, that's not people, that's the word is cosmos. It's the powers behind. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. But yet, because you are not of the world, I, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, 
they will also persecute you. How's this verse? If they kept my word, they will also, they will keep yours also. Oh, there's a strategy. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But like they kept my word, they will keep yours. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal. The, app, the practical application of authority is not being thrown by how they're treating you. And you will have authority. See, when the commission was given in Mark 16, I know I'm moving fast for the sake of time. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes, is this coming up behind me? I don't think, it is, okay. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those, but those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and recover. Most people in those verses, they focus on, I like the recovering part, laying hands, that's cool. And I like the, the signs that follow, that's cool. The casting out demons, yeah, that, that's cool. Tongues, yeah, some, you know, it depends, uh, you know, that's cool. And then the serpents and drinking things deadly. No, not really too sure about that. Because you see, unfortunately in these, these entire churches that are, you know, that's what they do practically. It's, it's not what it means and I've preached on this before, so I'm going to go quick. They were Aramaic and Hebrew idioms. We have to understand, people knew that in the day. A serpent was when an enemy attacks you through their words. And I'll show it to you in Psalm 140. It says, they sharpen their tongues like a serpent, the poison of asps. Aspis was the original word that was description of venomous snakes in the Nile region. The poison of asps is under the lips, under its speaking of the mouth. Romans 3.13, their throat is an open tomb. That's pretty severe, Paul. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. Their, the poison of asps is under their lips. It's vipers, venomous snakes. It says, you will take up serpents, meaning what? He will be able to take because you're free. People will say stuff about you and you can still love them because they will hear your word. What about drinking any, some of the Bible says, some Bible say poison, drinking anything deadly. It's actually the word deadly and the vines will tell you this. It means, it's, it's rep, the, literally the word deadly means reputa, it's reputation, severe attack, but it means belonging to or partaking of the nature of death. It's what the old nature, when it comes out, un unsubdued of other people, it's what will come out of their mouth and just spew all the stuff. And he says, you will be able to take these things and not destroy with them, but change and love people. It always comes together, friends. It's in Isaiah 53, the healing of the body, the salvation, of, the salvation and healing and it says, the next few verses, he was led as a, a lamb to the slaughter. When he was falsely accused, his mouth was silent. They come together. The power of the Spirit and being able to take something and not, it's not them. They need love and help. <laughs> See, 
when this was happening, if you go read the book of Acts, you will see time and time and time again, they were falsely accused. They were lied about. I mean, they even got false accusation over Stephen. And they took that and turned it as an opportunity to see people saved. Over and over and over. Why? Because it's what Jesus said to them and their understanding in the commission. So when that happened, it's like they were saying, this is working. This means we're doing it right. We're getting it right, guys. We're doing it right. They want to kill us. They want to do this. They're lying about us. Oh, thank you, Jesus. This is working. Hello. We have power. You know, that's what was happening. <laughs> Joseph learned the strategy. How do I know? That's, that's scripture. That's not true. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? Now Jacob has met Joseph and Joseph's saying, when you go to Sarah, Pharaoh, say these things. That you shall say your servant's occupation has been with livestock from youth, even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, the best land. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. They hate you. Turn that, say this, and turn the way they feel about you to live in the best of their land. Genesis 47, that's the verse we started with. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers, Pharaoh speaking, dwell in the best of the land. Let them, and if any competent men among them, make them chief herdsmen. Provision, promotion. Everyone else is in the famine. Just like our nation right now spiritually. Famine. Promotion. Living in the best. Just like in Acts. Why? They were hated. You're an abomination to them. <laughs> it's a divine strategy. People ask, why don't we see this today? Why doesn't this happen today like this? Why don't we see the book of Acts? Why, you know, and it's always power, which I love. I love all that stuff. I believe all that stuff. I've seen all that stuff. Well, the answer is in Acts 4. It says Acts 4, verse 23 to 24, and being let go, they were threatened. It says they were threatened. They were you know, told, don't do this. You're not allowed to do this. We'll kill you. So there's a threat we hate you. They're being let go. They went to their own companions. The word there means to their own company. It actually means to the ones they belong. And reported all that the chief priests and elders had said. So when they heard that, they raised their voice. You notice their singular voice. Not raise their voices. They raise their voice as one person. <laughs> to God with one accord. There is that amazing phrase. And said, Lord, you are God. And they pray this big prayer who made all the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. That's why it doesn't happen. Because the enemy knows he can throw in something and get them to divide and devour each other. The disciples were doing that even with Jesus when he walked on the earth. Who's the greatest? I want to sit, do this. I want to do that. This guy. But when the Spirit of God melts the heart, this becomes a possible strategy for those who will receive it, for those who will walk with the Lord, for those who will say, God, anything to see your kingdom come, your presence come. But it's very difficult to do alone. 
So we need those to whom we belong. You know, we hear uncle so-and-so's getting in trouble. What did he do now? It's not that. It's, it's a different way of thinking. He's one of ours. You know, friends, this is just a strategy. But to draw near to the Lord with a heart that says, God, I want to draw near to you. I want to see fellowship with you, which changes my heart to have fellowship with others so that I can extend forgiveness even when I'm wronged. I can extend forgiveness. I can forgive. I can forgive. Why? Because I will not allow the enemy to divide what you died for. I will not allow the enemy to divide so that I can have a brief moment of pity and because you're more exp- you're expensive. You know, your value, you, you don't sell so cheap. You're valuable, very valuable. The enemy is afraid of this. 